0: Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. There are times in your life you can come to that point when you feel like you're about as low as you can go. I don't care who you are, what your background is, whether you today in this church consider yourself a Christian or you have not yet declared yourself to be a Christian. Because hitting that wall, coming to that point of the bottom has fallen out of my world. That can come to anybody, at most any time. And there are people here today that will testify that there is a road out. There is a recovery. There is a way to come back from that. But you've got to trust in God. Now, Sarah has miraculously borne... Isaac, you're acquainted with that story. He is the child of promise. The problem that now develops is uh, Abraham and Sarah's ill-conceived plan of fathering a child through his handmaid, Hagar, in order to produce what they felt would be the child that was the promised child, now produced a child that was not the child of promise. And then Sarah has the child of promise, and we have conflict arising. It is somewhat personality conflict between Sarah and Hagar. And Sarah is very uncomfortable, even though she was a part of this whole scheme of allowing and instructing Abraham look, if we're going to have this so called child of promise, I am of no use to you. I cannot bear children. And therefore, our plan, you know, let's help God out. How many of you like to help God out sometimes? We just get in his way most of the time. So you take your handmaid, and you can have a child by her. And in that culture, it was very easy for them to assimilate that child into the family and consider that child to be theirs. And that part was not the difficult part. The difficult part was that wasn't God's plan. And Ishmael was born... Everything was as good as they could hope it to be until God's plan finally came into fruition. And he says, now it's time for us to have this child. And that came as as quite a shock to Abraham and Sarah who thought they'd already taken care of that issue. Sarah in her old age bears Isaac, who is the child of promise. Now you've got Sarah and her prize child, this miracle of God. And you've got Abraham who is the common tie between the two, who is the father of Isaac and the father of Ishmael, but Sarah's not connected to Hagar or to Ishmael anymore as much as she may have tried to take Ishmael as her own child and and be accommodating. The whole thing has changed, the dynamics have changed dramatically with the birth of her own child, and she no longer really has much to do or care for Ishmael and she develops an attitude it just comes to the point where she thinks that Ishmael is picking on her child you know how mothers are and she goes to Abraham and makes the demands you kick that woman and her child out she's not here anymore now, when mama gets something in mind, sometimes the husband knows that's just the way it's ultimately going to be. You might as well get with the program. You just know sometimes that tone of voice where it's, that, it's non-negotiable. It is now set in stone. Deal with it. So Abraham, almost with a defeatist attitude has to go to Hagar and to his own flesh and blood son and say, you can't stay. Sarah says, you can't stay. This is not going to work. And he packs them up with a few provisions and if you can almost picture in your mind, watches as they, they have to walk out of the camp. They leave. They disappear. Can you imagine... Abraham's heart breaking, watching his own, doesn't make any difference who this child was born by. It was his child. And sending his son that he had bonded with and taught the things that fathers love to teach their sons. And he says goodbye. The Bible says in the 21st chapter of Genesis, the 8th verse, The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. That woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Jacob. Sounds like she was a little bit intimidated. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Don't be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, and I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring, and the blessing comes to him because of Abraham. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, and he set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy, and she went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. Now, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes, and she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for the, she thought, I can't not watch my boy die. And she sat there, and she began to sob, and uh, I don't know how we can listen to this story, and read this story, without empathizing deeply with what is going on here. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies here. And lift the boy up, take him by the hand. I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy to drink. Now, my first point, just to get us rolling here, is what's your problem? There's a desperate situation here. And as I read this, and I think about this woman being expelled from the family, and, and Ishmael, it's the only security he ever knew. Now he's been booted out. He doesn't understand why. He can't comprehend this. His emotions are running so high. He's following his mother. He's evidently at least confused and feeling sorry for his mother, and probably feeling very scared himself. And in this desperate and destitute state, Hagar, running out of provisions, believes this is the final day and hours for her and her son. And pitifully, pathetically, in this scorching place that evidently does not have a lot of tall, towering shade trees, just finds enough shade from a little scraggly bush that that's the most comfort she can find for her child. And lays the child under the bush. And then walks away about a hundred yards. Because the Bible says that she says to herself, I can't watch my child die. Now that in itself is heart-rending. I can't imagine a mother being so distraught, even though it's a terrible situation, that she would not cradle that child until his final breath. But she just couldn't stand the pressure. Leaves the child, and while she's gone, thinking perhaps he'll just expire and I don't have to see it. And in this, this conflicted state, there's nothing left for Hagar to do but just to sob. She probably held it together in front of Ishmael, but now she goes away and she just breaks down and begins to weep and tremble uncontrollably. And an angel then appears to her and says, God has heard your child crying. Now, we know that God heard Hagar crying too, but that's not the point that the angel made or intended to make. He could have very well said, God has heard you both, but the emphasis here is, Hagar, God hears the boys cry. We don't need any further scriptural proof that God hears you when you can't pray, but all you can do is cry to Him. He hears you, and He understands. And sometimes, maybe you wonder if you've been successful in praying and pouring your heart out to God because you couldn't find the words. God doesn't need the words. He reads your heart. You're too distraught to formulate words. All you can do is weep before the Lord and don't think for a moment. He doesn't hear your crying. He doesn't know your pain. He doesn't see your tears because he does. What's the problem? The angel says, what is the problem? Hagar, I, I found all of the translations taking a stab at this, pretty interesting. King James Version, as we get the these and the thous going. What aileth thee, Hagar? The NIV. What's the matter? The New Living Translation. What's wrong? English Standard Version. What troubles you? New American Standard Bible. What's the matter with you? And the 21st century PST, that's the Pastor Scott translation. What's your problem? Not that God doesn't know, but he wants you to talk to him. Tell him about it. He doesn't mind. He's got a good ear. He'll listen. What's your problem? Tell him your problem. He's here to hear your cry. Point number two, and if this goes as fast as point number one, we're in great shape today. But I don't have high hopes. This is symbolic, this scene that I have created for you. This is symbolic of those times in our lives when things are so bad, it doesn't look like it can get any worse until you finally realize, oh, I I guess it can get worse. You ever been there? And at that point you say, well, it can't get any worse than this. But you say it with great hesitation. We think we've hit bottom. We feel like we've hit bottom. We can read this story and we understand the symbolic power of this scorching sun and this pitiful bush which provides very little, if any, real relief. We understand the application of the loneliness that they experienced in the wilderness where it seems like nobody is there for you and nobody understands and nobody reaches out. We can understand the heartbreak of watching somebody you love suffer and the deep frustration of knowing there's nothing that you can really do to change or to help There's the dread of seeing your resources drying up before your eyes as the outgo is greater than the income. And the sipping of the last drop of water and the downing of the last crumb of bread and knowing that without a miracle the end is near. We sympathize and connect with the emotional breakdown. When they finally come to the inevitable surrender. I can't do anything. It's beyond my control. I had put up with some difficulties in one church I had pastored. Ultimately I pastored them for eight years. But it was only halfway into that time at that point. And things were so rotten in that church. And there's such a a network and a maze of corruption. And and, and if anybody's surprised, I didn't know that was in church. Did you know there's people in church? Anywhere you find people, you find things, circumstances, and issues. And my wife and I had stood strong through the battles and the trials in that church. We had been attacked. And accused, maligned. And we just took it and took it and took it and tried the biblical prescription of just thanking God for the trials. That only works so long sometimes. Until finally, one woman came knocking on my office door and she came in and sat down and just cut me to ribbons. And when she got done and she left... And I closed the door behind her, and I checked the building, and there wasn't anything there. I went in my office and closed the door, and I lost it. And I was groaning like an animal. I heard sounds coming out of me I never knew that I could make. And somewhere in the midst midst of all this bellowing and blubbering, I remember trying to tell God, I've had it. I can't take it anymore. I can't do it, God. I've put up with this for four and a half years. I can't. I can't. I'm telling you, God, do you get it? I'm not saying I won't. I'm saying I can't. It's over. I'm done. I got up on Sunday and I told the people, I don't know where I'm going to find the the power to preach another sermon in this church. I'm finished. And they gathered around me and they prayed for me. It was a moment in my life when I realized I had literally come to the end of myself. I guess I had been running on some of my energy, or at least thinking I had to run on my energy. But God taught me a lesson in this. There's more to this story, but that's not my sermon today. God taught me a lesson in this that I will not forget as long as I remain sane. And that's. And that is because it was a a man that visited that church and came up and, and. babbled to me about nonsense that I wasn't in any mood to listen to whatever he had to say cuz it didn't make any difference anyway and he placed his hand on his m- my knee and he said and and I don't know what he said before that it didn't make any sense and he said and when you come to the end of yourself that's where god begins you got to get to the place people when you realize your provisions and your strength will never be enough some people who have never come to god it's because they don't think they need god But you need a wilderness experience in Beersheba to realize that what you have can run out. You got a bank account, it can be gone next week. You've got your health, the doctor can tell you tomorrow things are going downhill for you. You've got your family, you don't know how fragile that family is. You got your mind, we can all lose our mind in a moment. What do you have that will really carry you through? And if you can come to the understanding right now, today, I need you, God, without having to be taken to that point of desperation where you finally say, now I get it. I can't do this by myself, can I? And God says, I've been trying to tell you that. And you can have this experience where it finally comes to the bottom. And you say, now, God, I surrender. I've got to give it to you. Then you'll understand what Hagar was going through. This story can be the story of the sinner who's so far away from God that feels the doom and the hopelessness of their own lostness. It can be that crisis moment in their life when they thought everything was going well until they finally hit that one circumstance they can't do anything about. And they start crying out, God, where are you? I think I need you now. This can be the story of that sinner that cries out in fear and in pain and wondering, is there really a God up there who hears and cares and understands? I want to tell you, if that's the case, Jesus came for you. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He leaves 99 sheep in the fold and He goes after one that has gone astray. His specialty is redemption. Redemption. He can save to the uttermost. That's the good news for you. This can be the story of the backslider who has lost hope of ever finding God's favor again. The hopelessness cries out, there is no hope for me because God has abandoned me. I've gone too far. I've done too many things. It turns out that I was not as special in God's kingdom as I thought I was. I was not God's favorite. I was not God's chosen. Therefore, God has no use for me at all. I've gone too far in the wilderness. I've been too wicked. I have angered and hurt God too deeply. I am beyond the hope of forgiveness. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. For you, I want you to get a hold of this. Grace. 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 Grace that is greater than all of your sins. Grace that forgives. Grace that never gives up. Grace that will follow you to the ends of the earth. Grace that never gets tired of waiting until you get tired of running. Grace that waits until you have spent all that you have and you awaken to find yourself a burned out shell of the person you used to be and eating on the husks alongside the swine, disgusted with yourself and your fallen condition. And when you decide it's better to be a servant in the house of your father than it is to be a part of the of the hog pen of a slave owner you can start your journey back home to God grace comes running down the road sweeps you up in its arms tears off the rags of your sin bathes you in the cleansing power of the blood clothes you in the finest apparel of salvation caters the banquet of the best heaven has to offer and you go from crawling on corn husks and eating the junk to heaven's prime rib and probably a good side of candied yams i would say god is grace and he's there to give it to you this can be the story of any christian who endures the trials of life because in life's journey we sometimes hit that proverbial wall don't we these difficult times are so trying to our faith But God can use these times to teach people who are self-sufficient that when their resources run out, they now understand how much they need God. And maybe that's what most people need. Maybe that's what I needed when I came to the end of myself. Maybe our personal resources need to dry up so we can get desperate with God. Maybe that's exactly what Westside needed for the past few years. Maybe we needed a drying up of our personal resources so we can get desperate with God. God didn't speak to Hagar while she had food and water. It wasn't until the provisions ran out that he came to her. And then she was ready to listen. Maybe our trials and our greatest blessings are the things that draw us to God. Maybe we get too comfortable and we get too lax. Maybe we never seek the wells of heaven until our own pitiful little bottle of water runs out. Maybe we need to pray for God to empty our water bottle and dry up our wells of earthly wisdom and drain our human strength and send us to sob at the altar despair in hopeless, utter hopelessness until God says, now, I've got your attention I can speak to you maybe it's been our prosperity and our ease that has kept us from truly seeing God as much as we deeply need him number three there are three steps to recovery I see in what Hagar did she found herself in a bad situation that was most definitely not of her own making it was not her fault Abraham got out of God's will It was not her fault that Sarah forced her to bear Abraham's child. It was not Hagar's fault that Sarah was not big enough to allow Hagar and Ishmael to dwell there and share space with the family. Hagar did not create this mess. She was nevertheless the one paying the biggest price for it. We can believe, I think, in all honesty, that Hagar did everything a mother, a loving mother, could and would do in such circumstances. I can believe that she nibbled at the food while she fed the son what he wanted. I can believe she only sipped the water while giving to Ishmael what he needed to satisfy him. I can believe that while Ishmael slept, she kept watch. I can believe that whenever he grew tired and as weak as she was and weary and tired she carried the child i can believe that but you know how mothers are when they have that motivation and children are motivation they're unstoppable that motherly instinct is packed with so much adrenaline And so much reserve power, mothers can run another 500 miles after the gas gauge registers empty. We call them the weaker sex, but I think we're foolish for even inferring that. And Hagar came to this grinding halt, having done everything she could. That bag of food is gone. The bottle of water is empty And in this last act of desperation, she says and resigns herself, there's nothing left to do but just die. And pathetically places her child in the spot where he will die and goes away. The first thing you have to do, you have to learn to abandon your plans. I can say it another way. Give it up. Surrender. I love that. I love that old hymn we used to sing sometimes when we had the altar calls. I surrender all. Because you can't come to Christ until you have the attitude of but you don't come down here and say, I, 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 this sounds pretty good to me. I want to make you a business partner in my life. God's not interested in being your business partner in life. He wants to be the Lord. I surrender all. When you come to God, Lord, my plan is yours. My career is yours. My family is yours. My life, my body, everything I have. My bank account is yours. Everything God belongs to you. I surrender all. Abandon your plans. That's the path back to God. Buy into His plans. The second thing that Hagar had to do, and what we should do, is learn to tend to your responsibilities. Because whenever God spoke to her, He told her, you go back and you pick that child up and take him by the hand. This was a correction in her decision. She laid the child down and went away. And God came down and said, you've still got responsibilities. Go back and pick your child up. You know how many times people give up before it's over? You really think God wants His plans for you to die in the desert? He wants your plans to die in the desert. He has a bigger plan. It's not over till it's over. People give up before they've had their last at bat in the bottom of the ninth, and all kinds of things can change up to that point. There was a lady in Georgia whose husband was terminally ill. Finally, the day came when she called the funeral home and said, You can come and pick my husband up. They arrived and said, Where is he? She said, He's out on the back porch. Well, they went back on the back porch and he was sitting up there rocking and they came back in and said, well, he's not dead. She said, have a seat, he will be in a minute. We just kind of jump the gun sometimes. We're too quick to give up. We think we know what's inevitable. But God wants you to attend to your responsibilities until the end. Until he says it's over. We can't abandon the child. There's still life in that child. What is she thinking? There's hope when there's breath. Smoking flax he will not quench and a bruised reed he will not break. There's still hope. doesn't matter how low the fire gets and the ember gets and how wounded the reed is. There's still hope. Faithful to the end. Don't quit. Do what you can and leave the rest up to God. And then the final thing is hold on to the promise. And God said, and go pick the child up, take him by the hand, and I'm going to make him a great nation. Hold on to the promise. For Hagar, that was the promise. Now, that's not God's promise to you. He didn't promise to make a great nation of me. I'd love nothing more than see this world populated with nothing but rookses. It'd be perfect. But God didn't give me this promise. Well, I don't know if that'd be such a good idea or not, come to think of it. But he gave that promise to Hagar. And in all of my ministry, I can honestly say to you, I cannot think of one specific promise God has ever given me. That he came down and told me, now here's what I'm going to do for you. And so I held on to that promise, and I've seen that that God has never done that to me. If he's done that to you, then you probably got more than you deserved, and I missed out on one. He didn't do that to me. But I've got enough promises for His children. Enough of the promises that apply to everybody. I don't need anything else. I know He promised to build His church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. I know that. I know He's coming back again. He promised it. I know that. And that's good enough. I know greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And I can hold on to that. I know I can submit myself to God and resist the devil and he will flee. I know in all things God is working for my good. I know that's the fact. I know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know that. Hold on to the promise. I know when I come to the cross and I accept the sacrifice that Paul tells me in the book of Romans that my sins are forgiven. God's judgment on me is lifted and God imputes righteousness to me through the righteousness of Jesus Christ and there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. I know that's the promise of God. I know that... Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And because of that, I am going to come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I know that. I Hold on to the promise of God. And I know when it's all over, that God wins. And I want to be on that team. I remember when I was a little boy, and we would do pickup games in the neighborhood. It could be baseball in the horse pasture. It could be football in the horse pasture. You know where we had to play, don't you? We played in the horse pasture. It could be putting on our own little track meet there in the neighborhood, and around the block was once around the oval track. Set up pole vaulting in our backyard. Teams divide up into teams. And I remember standing in line as people were picking their team, and I was always picked last. God was hardening me for the pastorate. He prepares you early in life for things like this. And I remember seeing as the teams were coming together, just knowing as much as a human being could know that the way the teams were forming up, I was on the losing team. I grew up playing all the sports on the losing team. All the popular and the good kids got picked over there. I was the scrub. So when I know God wins and I have a choice of which team I want to join, it's a no brainer. I spent my life playing on the losing team. I want to play on the winning team. I don't want to play on the team that's going to lose. When Jesus comes back and all things are put under his feet and I'm going to be in their background saying, I got picked on the winning team today. (laughs) Bow your heads.